Well, good morning. Whether you're with us live or you're watching online, good morning. And uh, we have been talking this month of August as we've journeyed through the book of Hebrews about better hope and a better priest who makes a better covenant, a better promise. And uh, we've done a lot of things to explore that. One of the things that we're going to continue to talk about uh, is uh, we want to tell the better stories that Jesus is writing uh, through this time in our lives. And uh, we'll talk more about that as we go. But, uh, you know, as we do that, and and especially in these chapters here in the book of Hebrews, uh, there's some some weighty things. There's some things that it really ties a lot of themes and, and stuff together in Scripture. And when you're going through passages like that, sometimes it's, it's easy to get lost, right? It's a little easy to get lost in the trees and, and, and miss uh, the big picture, the forest. And so as we say that phrase, better hope and a better priest makes a better covenant, we also want to remember why that's important. And, and where the author is going and where we're going with him is uh, so that we can find more courage in and through Christ. More courage in and through Christ. Now, uh, you say, great, I, everybody could use a little more courage, but I want to, uh, as we come to this today, like we just have to make sure that we stay at the heart of what Christ is doing in our midst, right? Why might we need courage? Why might we need courage? In other words, why do we need courage, and why do we need to go back to Scripture in, in these chapters here in the book of Hebrews and be reminded of, of this courage and how Christ gives us this courage? One is, is something you've already heard this morning. We need courage because as believers in our community and in our society, uh, we are the minority. Four out of five people in our community don't know Jesus. They don't have that hope. They don't have that source of courage. And it takes a lot of courage to be Jesus and to share Jesus with those people. We need that kind of courage. We might need courage right now in reengaging society. Uh, different times, different circumstances. Uh, you think you've kind of got a handle on how you feel about things and the new news comes out or you're posed with a new opportunity to, to go out and do something different. And it's like, I don't, I don't know. I've, I'm losing courage to know what the right thing to do is. Uh, we might need courage right now. You might need courage right now because you're fighting for an important relationship. Maybe the virus has exposed something in a relationship that's close to you, or maybe there's relationships that you have that you thought were good, and now you're seeing that, that they're not as good as you once thought, and you find yourself in a fight for the most important relationships you've ever had. Why might we need courage? Um, some of us need courage simply to overcome guilt. The stories of our lives have not played out the way that we thought they might, And the guilt that comes with that and and our part in that can sometimes be a a heavy burden. And we need courage to to walk in newness of life. Some of us might need courage because we've lost a loved one or because we've lost something dear to us, an effort, a mission, uh, something that we see or sense falling uh, from the grasp of our fingertips. The point is we all need courage. I don't know why you specifically need courage, but we need courage. And I wanted to start today by just reminding us of the bigger picture of why we're studying these chapters and what's happening in in this section of Scripture. This section of Scripture reminds us we have better hope and a better priest who makes a better covenant. And so today we're going to be in Hebrews 8 and 9, if you've got your Bibles or if you want to pull up the the Bible app and find our digital bulletin there. 
Uh, it's been a long time, if ever, that I've tried to preach through two chapters in one Sunday. So I shared that with someone this week, and they said, your church is going to be upset with you. <laughs> so they're going to be late to lunch. That's not the goal. I think these two chapters uh, are a, a big chunk of Scripture. And so we're going to read a lot of Scripture today, not all at once. But in many ways, I believe that these two chapters connect the entire story of the Bible. They pull in so many different themes and ideas in a way that helps us to understand the, the whole scope of things. And so we're going to try to, to get a grasp on that. And, and one of the big reasons that I believe this is true is because the author says that these two chapters help us to see that what happened in the Old Testament was a shadow or a type of what was to come in Christ. And as I think about that, I'm reminded of a season in my younger life. Uh, I was a kid, and I, I went through this little time where I really loved to build model cars. I don't know. I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. I haven't seen them, or I don't know. Maybe it is, but I really love to build model cars. And I can remember going to Walmart with my mom, and we would buy like the little glue uh, paint sets and the, the the plastic cars. And sometimes if you got a really nice one, they had like metal pieces in them. And you'd put together all these little pieces, and you'd try to make that model car to the best of your ability. And I learned so much more about how cars functioned and worked by doing those things. And yet they weren't real, right? They were just a shadow or a copy of, of the real thing. And so the author says, all this stuff that I'm going to reference and talk about from the Old Covenant is kind of like those model cars. It's a, it's a shadow. It's a, it's a type. And so as we go through this passage today, I don't want us to get lost in, in what's happening in some of it, but I want us to remember that this is a shadow or a type. And, and going through that shadow or that type will help us to understand so much more fully how good the real thing is, how good Jesus really is. Because since Jesus is a different and a better high priest, the promise or the covenant that we're going to talk about today of his ministry is different and it is better. Let's read the first six verses of Hebrews 8 and then pray for our time in the Word. Scripture says, Now may the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus, but Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful for your word. We're thankful for who you are, a better high priest. Uh, teach us today about this better covenant that comes with better promises and what we can do in light of your better ministry to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a question that comes up. It seems like a rather obvious one, but we need to deal with it quickly. And it's, Why do we need a better promise? Why? I mean, isn't a promise a promise? A promise is a promise 
unless someone can't hold up their end of the deal. Have you ever made a promise to someone or been in a covenant-type situation where you committed something to each other, and then when somebody doesn't hold up their end of the deal, it's really frustrating, right? You can take this all the way back to group work in the second grade. When your friend didn't do what they told you they were going to do, there's disappointment. And so there's a need for a better promise, a better commitment. And, and Scripture speaks about this. Uh, the author in Hebrews goes on in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 8. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, finding fault with who? Not with the covenant not with himself, but finding fault with his people. He says, see, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. We need a better promise because we don't hold up our end of the deal. God is showing us in this passage that that was exactly what happened with the Jews. And before we say, well, that was the Jews, that's not me, let's just think of some examples of promises to God that we can't keep. Have you ever been the one that said, I'll, I'll never do this again, God, if you'll just do this one thing? Right? I'll give more offering, God, if you just allow this one thing to happen in my life. I'll quit my bad habit if, if you'll just take care of this one specific scenario. And the opposite can be true, too. If, and we'll say to God, God, if you'll just do this, this one thing, then, then I, I'll, I'll be better. I can remember, this is really sad, but I'm just going to confess it to you. Maybe it helps draw something to your mind. We'll, we'll trust the Spirit in that. I can remember in high school... I played basketball and football, and in Indiana, the state of Indiana, the first round of playoffs is called a sectional. And so, like, my one goal in life as a, a high school athlete was to win a sectional, whether that was in football or basketball. It was win a sectional. And I can remember praying, like, I get to my freshman year, my sophomore year, and I didn't win a sectional. So I start praying, Lord, please, I just want to win one sectional while I'm in high school. Lord, this is my prayer. I just want to win one sectional. And then I, I can remember, and I'm not even going to recount all those things to you because that's not important. I can remember the things that I promised to the Lord that I would do if I could just win one sectional. Lord, just one. I never won a sectional. What do we do with that? Who was unfaithful? What kind of promise is that? We need a better promise because we so often don't hold up our end of the deal. And when we get into that kind of mode, and, and it doesn't have to be so blatant as winning a sectional, but you just think about the things that maybe you begin to, to make deals with God in your head. And, and what we see is those are really requests for God to change you from the outside in. God, if you'll change my reality, if you'll change what's happening around me in the, in the world, then I'll give you my heart. I'll give you a little bit more of my heart if you could just change what's happening around me right now. And so this passage, these few verses, God is calling the Jews out for something that we know to be true in our own lives. Where we, we're making this deal with God where we say, if you try to change me from the, from the outside in, God, I'll give you my heart. And what we know is that if you try to change me from the outside in, you're really fighting a losing battle. 
Because I may be able to do better things, right? I may be able to make the outside look better, but eventually you're going to run into this cold, dead, guilt-ridden heart that's really messed up. The motives behind all that were, were wrong from the start. But so often, that's how we deal with God. That's, that's, that's how we relate to Him, is that if you'll change my reality, the things outside of me, then eventually, God, I'll give you what's inside of me. And we too often then, in light of that, get frustrated with God because we feel like He's not keeping His promises. But in reality, we're not holding up our end of the deal. I think what happens next in the passage is, is the author trying to make this point uh, in a very unique way. Uh, if you would, go to uh, chapter 9 with me, and we're just going to start reading in verse 1. It says, Now the first covenant also had regulations for ministry in an earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was set up, and in the first room, which is called the holy place, where the lampstand, the table, and the presentation loves. And behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place. It had the gold altar of license, incense and the ark of the covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna. Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. The cherubim of glory were above the ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. And then notice what this, this sentence says. It's so unique. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. Why does he say that? I, I tend to think that the author is making the point, right, that in this old covenant, in this, this, this promise between God and man, there are a lot of details. In fact, there are so many details that they're a little daunting. I, it's not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. Why all these details? And I think they teach us. These details of the Old Testament teach us not only about Christ, they're a shadow and a copy, but they teach us that it's impossible for us to hold up our end of the deal because the details are just too daunting for us. In fact, he goes on to say, speak about that in verses 8 and 9. He says, The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. This is a symbol for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. That cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. Hmm. You see, as we look at all these details of the Old Testament, we realize it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming that there's nothing we can do to right what we've wronged. There's no deal we can make with God that's just going to poof, make it all better. It, you might be able to compare it this way. Corona haircuts. How many of y'all got a Corona haircut? A few of you are willing to admit it. Others of you, your hair is telling on you. Um, some of you, maybe that's why you haven't come back to church yet. You've got a corona haircut that you're embarrassed by. I don't know. But if you watch what happens in some of these corona haircuts, right, it's like um, there, there's only so much you can do in cutting somebody's hair, right, before you just have to ask that person for forgiveness. Like you're trimming. It's like, oh, let me try to fix that. And you can only trim so much before you have to say, look, I'm sorry, I just, me I, I messed this up. I blew it, right? There's only so much hair to cut before it grows back. And I think the, th the same thing can be true in, in our relationship to sin and, and God. And you see, when, when this starts to ring true, that 
when we really start to go back and think about the details and think about a holy God, there's a moment as we reflect on our sin and our brokenness and all the things that, that we've kind of messed up over time, that we can't fix it. And we just have to look at God and say, is there any way that you can forgive me? Because the guilt that comes from realizing that we've done something that we can't fix is overwhelming. When this starts to ring true, guilt begins to, to not only run our heart down, it begins to run our lives. We operate from a place of guilt. Everything we do comes from that place. Sometimes the reason that we work harder is, is because of guilt. Sometimes the reason that we have a false humility, right? Sometimes the reason that we pretend to be humble is because of the guilt that exists in our lives. Sometimes we're operating from a place of guilt when we can't really grab onto and use the gifts that God has given us because guilt is just overriding everything that's going on inside of our heart. And so we do nothing. You see, this, this is often how the old system worked. So here, here was the old covenant, right? Uh, all covenants require God's mercy. If it isn't for God's mercy at any point in time in existence, like we could just be dead because the penalty of sin is death and we all have sin. And if God's mercy isn't existing in this moment to allow us to live, like we're dead. It all requires God's mercy. But to get to forgiveness, we need something else, right? So we got forgiveness down here. And we all recognize now that we need that because we can't write what's been wronged. And so how do we get from God's mercy to his forgiveness? And, and in the old covenant, it was all about my sacrifice. I just love the squeak of a dry erase board. It's great. This was the old system. God's mercy plus my sacrifice. What I would bring to the priest would lead to forgiveness. But Jesus is a different and better high priest. And the promise of his ministry is different and better than the old covenant between God and man. You say, how is it better? Jesus removes you from the equation. Jesus removes you from the equation. And that is one of the greatest graces that he could ever give to us. He says, listen, we need a better promise, but you never hold up your end of the deal in the promise. The only way that we can make a better promise is if we remove you from the equation. I'll take your place. I'll take your place. Sometimes the greatest grace to us is when Jesus removes us from the equation. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12 says, But Christ, I love, like we got but Jesus in chapter 8, but Christ in chapter 9. Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of, his, of this creation. He entered the most holy place, once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Like, whoa, there's a lot of words there. What does all that mean besides God's mercy plus Jesus' sacrifice equals forgiveness? Jesus' death on the cross initiated a covenant promise, a better promise that is better because he is alive. 
When he died on the cross, it began that new promise. But that promise was only better because he is alive. You say, well, okay, hold on. How does death initiate a covenant? How does Christ's death on the cross start a new promise? Read with me Hebrews 9, 15 through 22. It says, Therefore he, Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, it's a type, it's a shadow, right? He sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Jesus' death initiated this new covenant because you can't enjoy the gifts of a will until someone dies. We know this to be true from our experiences. The old covenant wasn't official until an animal's blood was was spilled out. Jesus' better covenant didn't begin until his life ended. Now, when Christ died, Scripture tells us that the curtain that separated the, the Holy of Holies was torn from the top to the bottom. And the more you dig into that, the greater significance you realize it has. In that moment, Jesus was opening up access to God himself, to any person who was in Christ. And this was the result of removing us from the equation. If we're still in the equation, he can't do that because our sacrifice must be made. But because he's removed us, those in Christ now have access to God. We have real and true forgiveness that is complete. You say, okay, I get it. The promise was started by his death. But what exactly was the promise and and why is it better? If you're following along, flip back to Hebrews 8.10. After God, uh, after Scripture tells us that the problem was us, it says this in verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, the new covenant. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Remember how we talked about the old way was really asking God to change what was outside of us so that what was inside would change? He says, here's how I'll flip it. I will put that new promise. I will put my words, I will put myself inside of you to change you from the inside out. This is what it's talking about then when it comes to verse 13 and 14 in chapter 9. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? We're changed from the inside out. The heart is changed and our external realities follow suit. I can remember a time, maybe you can too, where I learned that I had hurt someone after the fact. I had an encounter with somebody, they were hurt by something that I was said, and they didn't tell me right then, but later, after they'd kind of processed through it, they came to me and let me know that I had hurt them. 
And in that moment, when I learned about it, I did everything that I could to make what I had wronged right. Like, I, 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 how can I make it up to you, right? That's what you say. And they assured me that, that I did and that everything was okay. But it was interesting because the guilt from that didn't seem to leave me. Have you ever been in that spot? It's like I've done everything I've could to, to make the situation right, but I still feel really, really guilty about that. And that doesn't seem to jive with what we read in verse 14 when it says, man, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? Like a clear conscience. How do I get that? Well, first, let's think about guilt for just a moment. There's a couple of different kinds of guilt, right? Like there's, there's legal guilt, like I'm guilty. Like I was driving down the highway the other day and I was going 60 instead of 55, and so I'm guilty. But then there's the emotional guilt. The old covenant, you see, it was really good at taking care of the legal guilt. Like here's the rules. If you follow the rules, you've taken care of this guilt. But it was so insufficient in helping us to deal with the emotional guilt that came in our hearts and our consciences. There's a story that this, this passage points back to in the Old Testament that helps us to understand this. Aaron's son, Aaron was the first high priest in the order of, of Aaron, and of the, the Levitical priests. And his sons lost their lives in this crazy moment. They went to approach the Holy of Holies. Like they went to approach God. And because they weren't right with God in that moment, they fell down dead. They lost their lives. You're like, well, hold on, I didn't know I was guilty. I like, I, how do I deal with the guilt of that? And, and so in Leviticus chapter 16, there's something called the Day of Atonement that God introduces and, and gives to Moses to give to the people. And, and on the Day of Atonement, it was this day to try and cover the guilt. And so the, the high priest would take this offering, this sacrifice, and he would go and he'd make a sacrifice first for himself to, to cleanse himself of any guilt. And then they would bring a goat and they would confess all the sins of the people. Anything, even if they didn't know about it, they'd put them all in this goat. And then they'd take this goat to what Scripture calls an uninhabitable place. And they would release the goat out in the uninhabitable place. And that was their attempt to free themselves from this emotional guilt, right? It was, it was their process that, that God had given them to, to try and help them understand that, that God could free them from that. But what it shows us is that the law had no way to completely deal with guilt. Because even the guy who led the goat to an uninhabitable place was considered unclean. Check out these two verses. It says, The man who released the goat for an uninhabitable place is to wash his clothes and bathe his body with water. And afterward, he may re-enter the camp. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be brought outside the camp, and their hide, flesh, and waste burned. The one who burns them is to wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may re-enter the camp. There was nothing they could do to completely free themselves from their sin in this. They were really trying to, to get away from the guilt. But these things were a type, a copy but the good news for us is that Jesus is alive. His blood not only forgives your legal guilt, it cleanses your emotional guilt. Your very conscience is cleared by the blood of Jesus. And here's the thing. This is the good news that we don't preach enough. Too often, it's, you feel like you come to church uh, to feel guilty. 
I know I've got sins. I, go, I need to go to church and deal with my sins. You don't follow Jesus to, to have all of your guilt exposed, and yet you feel like that's kind of what you end up doing. Instead, we should be coming to church to thank God for forgiveness. We should be coming, you should follow Jesus because when you, when you do, man, you learn to walk in freedom from guilt because you know that his blood has cleansed your conscience. You have a better promise, not because you've held up your end of the deal, but because Jesus removes you from the equation. So I want us to quickly apply this to our lives in a few ways. The first is to simply think about this guilt and how Jesus might be removing you from an equation. Is there something that God has completely removed you from in this season? Is there something that is just, he's taken you completely away from it? And that's proving to be the most gracious thing he could have done? Has he removed you from an equation? If so, that's another way you can tell your better story. We've been talking all month about how we can tell a better story. The cards are on the back table as you leave today. Through the pandemic, Jesus is making what better? And sometimes one of the ways he's making things better is to remove us from the equation. Jesus removes you from the equation because that makes the promise better. Because the promise is relied, reliant upon a faithful and true God who never changes. But how does that change our current reality? This is where we come to Hebrews 13. The passage of Scripture that uh, God gave to Lee in birthing our church. Verses 11 through 13 now might mean something different to us. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. We just read about that. But we know that even the person that went outside the camp with those things, they had to wash their body like they, they were still human. They had, to, they had to cleanse themselves before they could come back in. But verse 12, Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. He left guilt right there. It stops with me because my blood is perfect and it pays for you. But then verse 13, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. You see, when we realize that Jesus has removed us from the equation and given us a better promise, church now goes beyond what is ritual to what is real. We don't have to go through the motions. We can, we can just move forward with God's mission to make disciples and bring about his kingdom here on earth. We can join Jesus outside the gates. Hebrews 9.14 comes back and affirms the same, thir- same thing. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works, so that, here's our purpose, we can serve the living God. See, there's a big difference between serving from forgiveness and serving for forgiveness. But because of Jesus, we can serve from forgiveness rather than for it. Serving for forgiveness isn't really serving at all. You're, you're not serving if you're doing it for you, to earn something back for you. You're working, and those works are dead because they are done out of guilt or obligation. But Hebrews 9.14 reminds us that we can serve with a clear conscience. How might we do that? You're going to hear in just a couple minutes at the end uh, about some of the Love Shelbyville Day groups for next week. And uh, there's going to be more groups. Maybe you have ways that we can serve in the community. And I want to take this, this really quick time and reminder to remind us of this. 
Love Shelbyville was never meant to be the be-all, end-all. It was always meant to open doors for each of us to figure out how we can serve the living God in the places where we live, work, and play. It's just the entry point. A father's love. There's lots of places, but today we heard about that. They need people, especially guys, to serve as tutors in their Dreamers Rise program. Call her today. Serve with a clear conscience, not out of guilt, but because of what Christ has done for you. Last but not least, um, if you've been attending in person, you got a text this week. Uh, if, you're, if this is your first time back, you probably didn't get that text yet, but we're going to have something on the screen here. We've got, you may have to clear out the background and see if that works. I don't know, maybe it'll catch it. I don't know. It's called a QR code. I'm learning all kinds of new technologies. Okay? If you've been here, you got a text with a link for a survey about how you can serve in the regathering. We all have to, to serve together because of what Christ has done for us. If you haven't gotten this, it's crazy. I didn't know you could do this. You can take your phone out, open your camera, and point it at that. You may have to zoom in on it, and like, it pulls up a link. It's insane. I'm getting old because I don't know what technology does anymore. But I want to encourage you to do that. Right now, we, we've identified two areas that we know we need people to help serve in if we're going to continue to gather as a church and to be on mission together. Uh, we would love to open up a preschool room uh, with all kinds of considerations and precautions so that families in our community can come back and be a part of the church in different ways. Uh, we also recognize that uh, while Katie and I have uh, we, like we love greeting you at the door. Uh, we need more people to help make this place uh, an inviting place in a safe way. And so uh, please take this survey, let us know, and we're continuing to work towards being uh, the healthiest expression of the church in our community that we can be, all right? Serve those ways. Some of you, though, as I talk through all that, you're saying, Blake, that's great. I want to serve. I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm still walking around with guilt. I can't shake the guilt. What do I do with the guilt? we got two things for you. First, if you haven't repented, if you haven't turned from that sin and said, I recognize that Christ is the only way, and you say, well, man, I did that once, Blake. And, well, okay. We also have to recognize that turning from sin can be really difficult. It's a daily, constant choice. How do I keep turning from this sin? But if I do that, he is going to cleanse me from the guilt. 1 John 1, 9 affirms this. It says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And just in case we don't think it's a constant practice, James 5, 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. So if you're still walking around with guilt, you've got to repent. You've got to actively be working against the sin in your life. That's part of what you're doing with him. But if you're doing that, and you're still walking around with the guilt, and you can't seem to shake it, there's something else that I would recommend. Stop it. Stop it. You serve a God who is so much bigger than the guilt you're experiencing. Believe and trust in Him. Repent from your sin and stop walking in guilt. Jesus has removed you from the equation. He's cleansed your conscience so that you can serve the living God. 
We have a better hope and a better priest who makes a better promise. And here's the promise that we hold on to, Hebrews 9, verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. We hold on to that. And when he appears, he's not appearing to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. You see, church, the next time we see Jesus, he'll be coming to save us because he's already served us. The reality is, is there's two kinds of people. There are those who are working to save yourself, and there are those who are waiting on your Savior. Today, you're either working to save yourself or you're waiting on your Savior, expectantly hoping that, man, He's coming at any moment to save us because He's already served us. He's already taken our sin and our shame and our guilt. And the next time we see Him, He will be coming to save us. Today, if you're working to save yourself, instead of waiting for your Savior, He's calling you to accept the forgiveness that he's already given to you. He's already given it to you. Today, if you need to make that decision, you're online, you can text at New Life CCC to 81010 and start a conversation. Or if you're here with us, I'll be sitting in the chair right down here, singing until somebody stops me from singing. And I would invite you to come and stop working to save yourself. Make a change today to where you, man, everything in your life the way, that you, the way that you get up in the morning, the way that you carry yourself at work, the way that you love your spouse and serve your family, the way that everything about you happens indicates that you are waiting on your Savior. You're waiting on the one who has already made a way for you. If you need to make that decision today, please come as we worship and as we pray together. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for being a better high priest. can't imagine can't imagine what it must have been like those those days between death and life we are so thankful that you are alive Jesus and today we just want to claim we want to we want to proclaim that that we don't have to live in guilt anymore that we can find a new kind of courage in all of these unknowns not because we've figured things out, but because we have a Savior who is alive and has promised to us that he is coming to save us. We want to cling to that hope today. Help us to live differently in light of that. Help us to serve actively in light of that. Help us to be far from guilt and shame. Not because... Not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done for us. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for how you love us, for taking our place, removing us from the equation. We pray all this in your name. Amen.